Hey, it's Craig Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Monday, January the 10th. Well, a lot to recap over the weekend, including uh, ambulances. We got talking about the healthcare industry. It was a big story. I'm not saying it shouldn't be a big story Saturday night when there's no ambulances available in Toronto uh, per the paramedics union. But doing some digging and some research, which is something that we do, it's happened before, and it's certainly happened before in other cities in Ontario. So we get to that. Dr. Zane Chagla on the show. I really want you to hear this because we talk about uh, we didn't have as much time for vaccine equity equity today, um, and he's been very vocal on that. But oral medications are now available in the United States and the United Kingdom, but not here yet to help treat patients with COVID. This will ease up hospital issues, ICU beds. There's no doubt about it. It's happening in U.S. cities and uh, and in London and Birmingham and Manchester in the U.K. right now. The documentation is pretty obvious. So we talked to Dr. Chagla about that. Uh, and a uh, politician in Manitoba kind of dragged, dragged a little bit for a tweet about his wife uh, shoveling snow. We will have that on the podcast as well. Toronto Today begins now. Brian Stelter's on CNN, right? You would recognize him instantaneously. Uh, and he, you know, wrote, he's written lots of books about morning television and whatnot. Um, he weighed in on uh, how the media is now covering Omicron. And he weighed in. I know you might think, well, that's the United States. Does this factor in here? I'm conscious not to put something on that doesn't affect, you know, uh, how things are locally. They used to tell us in journalism school, lead local or localize the lead. So that's what we're doing here. The concept in the first segment at the top of the hour is play the hits. What do you need to know the most of? Because some people get in the car at 6.05. You can't just say, well, we talked about that at 6.05. Yeah, I know. It's 8.10. That's when I get in the car. So what are you doing for me here? What are the biggest stories? Brian Stelter went here and um, be still my beating heart. Did he almost say there's too much doom and misery and depression and threats and scaring people and on and on? Um, in uh, in terms of putting doctors on the TV and the radio who threaten you and tell you the world is caving in and tell you we're all at risk and tell you we all should be hiding in the basement? He did. Here's what it sounded like. 91% of Democrats and 80% of Republicans agree that there is a mental health crisis in the United States. Researcher David Paleologos says this new poll, quote, tells a story of despair felt by Americans who just don't know when the madness of COVID will end. The madness of COVID. But I want to focus on the other segment of Americans, those who are vaccinated, who are paying attention to the pandemic, and are hearing about Omicron and school closures and testing troubles and all the rest. This moment in the pandemic is really complicated because a mostly mild variant is still bringing hospitals to the brink of capacity and care. Now, many doctors are doing an amazing juggling act given these circumstances. And yet, I think we're also potentially seeing and hearing from doomsday doctors who push people toward even more fear, anxiety, and depression. I'm not trying to call out anybody in particular. I think this is obviously really nuanced, but is there an undue amount of fear being spread, especially in those Twitter threads and Facebook posts and you know, in corners of cable TV where it feels like COVID zero is the only goal? COVID zero, of course, the idea that you can completely eliminate COVID from the environment, which is an impossibility. Bestill my beating heart. I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. 
this reminds me of having a car that needed to be choked. You know how there's a choke button in a car? My parents helped me buy a 1983 Mazda RX-7 in the summer of 93. I just couldn't believe it. I think we, they paid like $3,100 for it. I'll never forget where I was. I was out at their house. It was May 1st, 1993. I was 20 years old going on 21. Um, a rather remarkable thing. And uh, But you had to, in, when the weather we did colder, you would choke the car. Like you had to pull the choke out to get the engine to rev. This is how I relate to, as, as was just described, and again, when you're hearing that on CNN, that's really something. Doom, I'll read through the quote again. Doomsday doctors who push people towards even more fear, anxiety, and depression. And let me ask you if you can relate to that. 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. I made it clear in early December um, that the tone of the conversations that we wanted to have on this show, and I don't think we were um, you know, out of alignment with each other on it, just had to change. It had to change. And that's based on practicality, pragmatism, some of the data we were getting. We are in tough here. No doubt about it. But um, you see stats over the weekend and you see doctors saying, we're not seeing any boosted people come into emergency rooms. Is that a universal truth? Is that a guarantee? Is this, uh, you know, if we'll deliver it in 30 minutes or it's free? No. No, those don't exist. They never did prior to Omicron. But that is what reminds me of my old car is when you rev those engines, right? When you pull the choke, you can only do it so many times and maybe the car won't start. But you're only harming people, not helping people when you choke out their emotional engines over and over and over again. And we're all done with it. And so I know, I know just from crowd surfing itself that uh, you have preferred that that tone has changed. I can't, I won't ever claim to speak for anybody who writes in the newspaper, anybody else who's on television or really any other radio shows. You just end up doing what you think is right with, with straight talk and empathy and staying in touch with what the public ends up wanting. Okay, And CNN, to be honest, has gotten a lot of criticism for spawning a lot of that uh, anxiety. But what a relief that maybe we can start having conversations and center our wellness. There has been a cost to this fear-mongering. You know it. You feel it. Your heart races. You worry about your parents. You worry about your kids. And it is long overdue that we start singing this song together. And if you were, you know, panicked and afraid about this and that, maybe there was reason to, and maybe it was unnecessary. We all respond differently. Can we try that? Is that difficult to walk each other off the ledges a little bit now? I think it's necessary. I'm disappointed we're figuring this out a little late, but I was probably late uh, by a few more months than I should have been uh, to this particular party. Dr. Lucy McBride um, is on our show a lot. She's an internist in Washington, D.C. She was on CNN with Brian Stelter yesterday and echoed these same sentiments. Uh, boy, Lucy's a rock star, so I'm pretty biased. But the bias is about what she says, not who she is. Here you go. I don't ascribe ill intent to these doctors. I think most physicians went into medicine to help people. I think a lot of physicians themselves are anxious and themselves are trying to offset their own anxiety by broadcasting to a wider public the anxiety that's in the air. But mm. if doctors 
and public health officials don't check their own anxieties, their own fears, and take a moment to reflect on how they are messaging and how they are potentially doing harm by, again, sharing fear-based messaging, then we really, really should take a break. Because look, doctors are people too. We're seeing a mental health crisis among, among healthcare providers as well. We are human. It's normal to feel anxious. It's normal to want to share our stress with others. But when it's affecting people's everyday behaviors and affecting the way they feel and, and their decisions, you know, fear isn't motivating. Fear just makes people afraid. Fear isn't motivating. It makes people afraid. Is there any other way to look at it? Okay, so there's room for everyone at this particular table. Trust me, I'm trying to reduce anxiety. I know there's people out there that say, hey, sometimes you do too much COVID on the show. I'm aware of that. And there's probably sometimes we do. I wouldn't want to not do enough to keep you informed, to keep you practical. And the reason I think that's true, and I think we all feel that way uh, here on Toronto today, is because there's enough other voices out there trying to scare the living bejabbers out of you. It was a tough time right before Christmas. Shave down your gatherings. Don't get together for Christmas. Don't do that. Here it comes. Here comes Omicron. And if you work in healthcare, you're well aware. We have amplified those voices. We have. I, I, I think this show will feel proud of putting nurses on and oncologists and radiologists who are seeing their healthcare system getting flooded. The EMT story from earlier today, it's a critical, critical factor to start talking about these things and saying, this all feels like a, a damn breaking in terms of our healthcare system, but I would make the case this is a damn breaking in terms of pointing out how out of touch scaring people through media appearances is. It is. We want facts and we want data and we want pragmatism. We're, we're sick of running for our lives. We're sick of being told to hide. We do have to do certain things here. I'm, I'm 100% on board with all that, but we're trying to move the ball forward. This also is what Dr. McBride said in a podcast appearance. Again, I'm going to try and get her on later in the week. Um, that clip was from CNN yesterday. This is what she said. And again, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly express myself as eloquently as she does here the primary data and think about think about your opinions before you go putting it on twitter first of all and think about it um if it differs from the group that's okay um and so you know yes this is a political politicized pandemic it's one of the biggest tragedies of our time um as is the moralization of human behavior as is the the mistreatment of children um and the absence of understanding about mental health and how relevant it is to our physical health those are the things that i lose sleep over yeah, I love it. I've lost a lot of sleep over it also. And I don't want uh, if the media is considered, well, you know, media and established media. And I don't want to be so detached with reality uh, that we can't pivot and change things. Uh, I think we're willing to do that. I think we're demonstrating that. OK, um, by the way, I, let's get rid of a couple phrases if we're able to, if we're able to. That is uh, one is the idea of, well, this person's fully vaccinated. We don't have a clue anymore. I'm not one of these, you know, the, the last thing I am, tinfoil hat guy, conspiracy guy, this happened, that happened. I don't believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, but that's a different story, okay? But nonetheless, we got to stop using that term. Right now, my teenage boys are fully vaccinated. They've had two shots. I'm fully vaccinated because I've got three shots. But the, the term's almost like like last November because we got to start talking about how many vaccination shots we've had. It's highly possible, as you saw the headlines last week, we're talking about a fourth shot. 
I'd rather not get any more shots, but I also understand it um, that there's a lot of things we're not in control of right now. And here's the other thing, and it's the biggest thing for me, is nothing's happening because of COVID. Nothing is. It's all the response to COVID. COVID doesn't have your kid's school closed right now. The decision and the inactivity by the province and also the framing of what a case is and our isolation and quarantine requirements have your school closed. COVID hasn't closed your school. COVID didn't close your business. COVID didn't cancel your trip. COVID hasn't canceled your kids' soccer practices and games. Decision makers close things. Diseases, endemic diseases don't close things. I think it's an important linguistic distinction to make. Here's the thing. We don't want to go to rallies two weeks from now, three weeks from now for our kids. We do want to send them back. They're going back to school in six other provinces today, including B.C. and Alberta. And um, there's, again, what have we said? Risk benef- there's, there's going to be risk-benefit analysis uh, analyses to everything. There's going to be risk mitigation. There's there's a way we can do this. And there's a lot of fingers of blame uh, to point around. I want to bring on uh, Stephanie Mitten, who handles Government Relations for Children First Canada, which is a great organization that puts kids first constantly. Stephanie, thank you very much for making the time for us here in Toronto. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Happy to. By the way, let's start. We start uh, light here and then we get we get really heavy and then we're both in tears by the end of the segment. So um, <laughs> I saw you saw that tweet uh, from Manitoba with the the, uh, uh, the the snow shoveling. It Could it be? Could it be that a really great breakfast was being made? Or do you think it was like just two ego waffles with uh, with kind of like months old syrup? We don't know, right? Oh, I hope it was a good breakfast. <laughs> It got a lot of attention. I'll I'll say that. That guy's got some work to do. Valentine's is right around the corner, though, so you never know. You never know a month from now. You can make up for it. So. There's a lot to make up for, yes. Uh, and uh, and maybe deleting the tweet a minute after you send it, uh, which we've all had to do at times, was a bit of a mistake. This um, We're a week out from this with, uh, with that you know an announcement that I think, honestly, honestly, it, uh, it hit parents so hard a week ago today, and... Uh, it doesn't get any easier. People say, well, are you used to it now? And I'm like, nobody ever gets used to little kids staring at a screen. And the fact that it's not the first time and the fact that we've done so much to move the ball forward, got vaccinated, got our kids vaccinated, um, know, know what to do and when to do it, um, it's really demoralizing. It's been a demoralizing seven days for parents here. Yeah, it's been a really challenging time. And I think what you said about you know, we've done this before, it actually makes it more challenging because we know how hard it is Mm -hmm. when we have to do it again and we see the changes in our kids and even in our own mental health, uh, we know too well that this is what it's going to be for probably more than the next couple of weeks. What can your group and what is your group um, advocating for and where do those messages go? Is it strictly government? Is it school boards? Is it teachers unions? How does it happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, you know, bringing those messages to government is really important. But like you mentioned, there's a lot of different folks in the system. And the messaging from public health and from government has been that schools should be the first to open and the, and the last to close. And that's what, what we believe is really important. And that, that's not the public health decisions that actually have been made. And so that's what we, we want to see. We, we, of course, want schools to be safe. Um, but this uh, idea that kids are just resilient and they're okay is actually not factual. 
It seems a real excuse, and I, you know, I'd never mention individual names, but when that's been brought up to me, and it's mostly, again, uh, you know, again, uh, social media can be wonderful to make contacts, reach out, find out about organizations like yours, and it can be uh, quite terrible as well, because the, the concept is, is that uh, we're going to have this here. We can't stamp this out. There's no two weeks to, to slow the spread or, or bend the curve anymore. And our kids, Stephanie, have these finite amounts of time that they get to be kids for. And given that we'd all sacrifice anything, we could even our own lives for our children. We'd push them out of a way of a moving car. The least we can do, to be honest, is kind of yell and scream until people make it right for them. Right. And there's been, I mean, we're looking at children's hospitals, kids' organizations. There has been detrimental impacts and they're getting worse in terms of mental health problems with hospitals seeing increased signs of abuse, eating disorders. And I think we need to wake up to the fact that they're really not okay. I mean, organizations like ours at Children's First, we've been calling for this for months. And I think this time feels a little bit different. I think parents get it. They've had enough and they want governments to actually focus on keeping schools open. That may mean other public health measures should have been taken earlier that we wouldn't be in this position. So going forward, they need to factor that in more as a priority in their decision-making. We've got Stephanie Mitten with us on Toronto Today. Uh, She handles government relations for Children First Canada on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. What are the biggest, uh, and and again, this this is dark, but we have to talk about it because we got to make it better and and shine some light on on things we want light uh, for as we go forward. What are the biggest things you see? We've talked about eating disorders, mental health, depression, just a lack of socialization. I will say, again, I'm not uh, I, I'm not loving the concept. I don't know if I could do it of putting four mm-hmm. and five year olds into masks for 35 hours a week. I think we're doing things to our kids we would never never allow anyone to do to us as adults. Yeah, it it really has been a challenging time. And as you mentioned, like those are certainly some of the concerns. And I can speak to it in in my own family. And I have a child who last year during distance learning, we realized was ADHD. And I had to cut my work time in half because she couldn't focus at all. I Mm -hmm. actually had to sit beside her. Now she is really behind in school. Um, And before COVID she wasn't. So that affects her, her mental health. My, my other child has had very serious mental health challenges during COVID that are exacerbated uh, when she is at home. And, and she called this the mental health killer the other day when I was telling her there's, you know, going to be more school closures. And until uh, you have had a 10-year-old um, talk to you about wanting to commit suicide. Like, that is actually what's happening. That is the reality of where we are at right now, and you need to take it very seriously. And even through all that darkness, the, the fun things that you get to do, you only get to do it so long, and time feels more infinite for you and me. This is this is why people write on Twitter on Tuesday. Is it Thursday? No, it's only Tuesday. <laughs> kids don't feel that. It is a it, it flies by. And and you'd probably remember before kids, somebody would say, "Hey, you, you should do this, do that. Go take go take that trip. Uh, you know, go to the movies a lot because you'll have them." And then it's like it's like a lightning a lightning fast ride. And next thing you know, they're gone. And that's what's crushing parents right now too is watching their kids suffer and knowing that your runway of time. I got a. 15-year-old and a 13-year-old at home. So um, this has been going on since they were barely 13 and barely 11. 
uh, we're going to lose them to university or, or anywhere else they want to move out to. And um, I, I that that's the most intolerable part of all. Yeah, it's challenging because it's not like it's been six months. It's, it's been a couple of years. Um, and, I mean, it's challenging because we know that kids really benefit from being in sports and activities, having, you know, regulations, routines, normalcy, stability, and all of that is being stripped away. Uh, I think it's really important for people to use their voice. You can reach out. Uh, online or in writing to your elected officials and make it clear that you care about these issues. You can engage with organizations like Children First. You can follow us online to find out what we've been up to or what we're encouraging people to do. And as challenging as it is for parents right now, we don't have any other option but to dig deep and find the strength to support them. I spend a lot of my time organizing ways for my kids to play outside with other kids because that's allowed and that's what keeps them going is just little small things positive things for them to look forward to like like going skating and uh there's just not a lot that they can do right now. So we have to do those things. Yeah. I'm planning on taking my kids tubing Friday, but if honestly, if I say where, uh, then I'm, I, I may lose my spot. So Stephanie, I can't, my, my tubing locations gotta, <laughs> gotta stay secret. Uh, I, I don't mind yeah. sharing Netflix shows they're watching cause anyone can do that. But if they take that tubing spot Friday night at seven 30, I can't see, I, I'm giving too much details away. Thank but, you. know, yeah. that's part of the challenge. Is you it is. Because it's constantly changing. Sometimes I don't even tell my kids until the day we're actually going to go skating or do something because it could get canceled. I hope you get to go. Yeah, the the times we've had to say no because uh, you, you gotta you gotta lie to your kids anyway. Sometimes you're like, well, I couldn't do this because of that, and I couldn't do this because of that. They're not harmful lies, but I, I'm tired of of not having answers for them. You want to have some kind of answer. And when we don't, when are we going back to school? When can I do this? When can I do that? It's, it's heartbreaking to, it's hard to do for a month, 22, 23 yeah. months. It's impossible. Impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for making the time. And thanks for what children first Canada does uh, and keep at it. Keep being vocal. I know you will. Thank you for this. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. Here's the tweet. Here's the tweet. From uh, our next guest, who hosts uh, On Point with Alex Pearson at 630, uh, right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Tons of experience. Uh, I hear the show a ton because I'm driving around. I used to be driving around more, but I, now I find excuses to go out and drive instead of chores and errands and being a shuttle service for the two people I live with who are sometimes not grateful for it. Anyway. Enough about me. For the first time in my life, I'm going to a protest. I've covered countless as a reporter this time as I go as a parent who can no longer stomach kids being destroyed by learning loss and mental health illness because politicians can't do what we pay them to do. And yesterday's rally at Queen's Park was attended by our own Alex Pearson, and she's kind enough to join me now on Toronto Today. Now, I know you don't want that footage coming out of you attending those Greta rallies. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was the one person over at the Aspire. I see. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's terrible. You were eating a hot dog and throwing a wrapper on the ground. That was not right. Was that was straws. that was disrespectful to young Greta there, Alex. Come on. I need another straw. Where are my straws? Uh, yeah, the paper straws are just fine. Just fine for all of us. We can, uh, we can, we're, we're saving turtles and dolphins. We, those are cute animals. Um, we eat the other ones, but we want to save those. What was it like yesterday? Um, it was a, uh, it was a couple hundred people, and it wasn't huge. What it was, though, was unified. And it was interesting because there were people from all different political stripes. It wasn't actually political at all. Mm -hmm. These are parents 
who have just said, look, this is not political. This is very personal. And I don't need to tell you um, about the kinds of stories we are hearing. We hear them every single day from parents who up until, you know, very recently were willing to do what they had to do. You know, sure, we want our kids to be safe. Sure, we want to do the right thing. But we're talking, especially in Toronto, which has gone through the longest close, uh, shutdowns, this is, we're into the third one. And at some point, you have to say, we cannot sacrifice these kids because, you know, and, and it's not just Doug Ford. We're talking 20 years, 30 years of politicians making bold promises about medical care. And then to your caller's point a couple of calls ago, and I mm-hmm. think he nailed it. You know, they're being sacrificed because those in charge can't get their crap together. And I'm being very polite. Yeah. And that's not okay because our crap wasn't together before. The hospitals have always been strained. And so is this going to be the cycle? Because what's going to happen, and, and you know this, there's going to be a tsunami of mental health issues with these children. We're already hearing about record eating disorders. We're already hearing about kids dropping out, kids getting depression, kids getting anxiety. Maybe other people, people are okay with it. Morally, I, I can't sit by and say, yeah, this is okay because COVID will go away, but mental health illness does not. That's a lifelong battle. It's, it's a remarkable thing for the people that are very, very myopic about COVID. And uh, you've had, I want to give you credit because you've had Dr. David Jacobs on your show. Um, and I'm just, uh, that's a guy that see all sides. And he has not been against every restrictive measure. And he's not been against the times, especially pre-vaccination when we had to, you know, hold down the fort and wait something out. It's frustrating for all of us. But now, as you note, th- there's going to be a cost-benefit analysis to every single thing we do. And nothing in the next several decades is going to be without risk. And the logical doctors that I'm putting on now, I mean, I think there's been a modest pivot by our show. But you've had Dr. Jacobs on from the beginning. And he's taken a lot of stuff for being, oh, you're being insensitive. He cares about the eating disorders and the suicide attempts and mm-hmm. the weight gain and the lack of socialization. Because because that's what life is. It's a full picture that's not myopic. Right. I mean, the loudest voices and those who fill up the airways with hysteria are the ones who get the attention. They do not speak and should not speak for the masses of parents out there who are seeing firsthand whether they're parents of autistic kids who have been completely abandoned, uh, whether we're talking about kids with learning disabilities. I struggle with my little boy. He's got a couple of issues that he's dealing with. Mm. You know, I, I have a full-time job. You have a full-time job. I simply cannot give him the teaching that he deserves. No parent can, because guess what? We're not paid to do that. We don't have the time to do that. What we are telling these kids is, you know, we're telling a 14-year-old or the 15-year-old, you know that, that ballet career you wanted to go in or that hockey career you wanted to go in or that... You can't do that now because we've just taken two years of your life. And we often hear, Greg, well, kids are resilient. Yeah, they are resilient to a point. What they are not are pawns, and they have been used as pawns, whether it's by the unions, you know, throughout the last 20, 30 years to get what they want with work-to-rule action, but they've become pawns to cover, um, you know, to either get stuff for the unions or pawns now by politicians who need to cover their rear end and not let up a, a brittle you know, broken healthcare system implode. And what we're doing is basically saying, kids, you're not going to learn. We're not going to catch up to speed. We're just going to push you through and make it look like we're doing what we're doing. But these kids are being set up for failure. And it's not about them being snowflakes. That's not what this is about. They are literally falling behind to a point that they're not going to be competitive throughout their lives. How is that okay? 
Alex Pearson is our guest on point tonight with Alex Pearson uh, at 630. Uh, I 100% agree with everything uh, you said. I don't, from a political perspective, because you, you've covered it and you, you know your stuff, I didn't see the win here. I didn't see the win here for Ford to do this. It felt like there was a bit of a turning of the tide before Christmas that said, you know, why are we testing fully vaccinated, healthy people? When will we get there? Um, at least give give tons of people online options. Give some teachers online options. But I didn't get the political um, I didn't get the political win for Ford here. I'm still not sure I do. No, no one does. And uh, I can tell you, I mean, conservatives are furious about this. He has irritated the base in a way that I don't think can be repaired because and and you can park some of the blame with him on this uh, for the decision making. But you can't blame him for all the systemic failures that goes back years. So anyone thinking, well, Del Duca's the answer. No, he's not, because his government didn't do what they were supposed to do after SARS. Like I've covered SARS as a reporter for many, many months. They had millions of dollars in inquests and inquiries and commissions. And what did they implement? Dr. Tam wrote the pandemic preparedness book in 2006. Did they bother to read it? I don't think so. My concern is that we have become so, um, we have gone along, get along, we get go along to get along, and we have done all we're asked. I don't know what the end point is. I don't know how many vaccines we have to do to get out of this thing. And, and at this point, Doug Ford's got to be real honest. Parents just need to have their expectations you know, level. Just tell me, am I looking at this till March? Am I looking at this till till after, like the rest of the year? What are we looking at? You have to tell parents what their expectations can be because you know you're exhausted. We're all exhausted, but there's no end point. Now, I don't know what that is. So has he made a political mistake? Absolutely, because he's listening to the special interests and not making decisions what, what the greater good is. The data if it's driving the decisions, would tell you that kids should be in school, they're safer in school, they're not causing spread in school. That's the data. They're, they're getting it when it's brought into their home by an adult. We have to get away from this, well, if one kid's going to fail, they all must fail to keep it fair. And we have to start thinking yeah. of putting the kids first and making sure as many as possible are getting, you know, their education they need. And I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of finish on, on this because I think you're probably telling you, you're running out of time, but the kids, <laughs> it's a constant the kids problem. Are, I know, the kids who are being hurt most, Greg, are the kids in the lower income, the yeah. kids whose parents have to do shift work, the kids who will need every advantage in life to make it. And what we're doing is basically using them as collateral damage. And and for those who worry about equality and equity and all these things, you got to remember they're the ones who will be hurt the most because their parents can't, let's say, afford a nanny or whatever. But, you know, we, we've got to actually re- look at this as a health issue and not just yeah. a you know political one. Even, even Brian Stelter yesterday on CNN referred to them as doomsday doctors, and he said there yeah. were too many of them. These doomsday yeah. doctors... Why don't you open up the, the door uh, to your $1.8 million home, and why don't you let mm-hmm. some of these underprivileged, why don't you let them use your Wi-Fi? Why don't you make them lunch yep. today, since this was so critical that schools had to close and we've got malls open, okay? we got kids, we've got mm-hmm. teenagers going to the mall, and who wants to have mm-hmm. that fight with a 17-year-old? I know the hospital system's getting crushed here. I find it really difficult for you probably to look in your son's eye or me to my son's eye and go, you know, you got to do this because because ICU beds. I can't do that yeah. to them so i'm making up excuses and i'm not being accountable to them 
Yeah, no, he, my son does not understand this. He just wants no. to be in his class. He wants to be with his teachers. You know, yeah. what I've noticed in our house is that as an only child, he just doesn't want to make friends anymore. He doesn't want to see people. He doesn't want to go out. Not for us, lack of trying. But this is what we're teaching kids is stay on your screen and be alone. That is not the life of a child, which, by the way, doesn't last all that long. Like two years in a child's life is an enormous amount of time. You take away a grad ceremony. You take away you know, dances or sports or fun events like birthday parties, that's a big thing in a kid's life. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, it, it is. Uh, we'll and be li- these doctors, you know what? Their 15 minutes has to be up, Greg. It has to be up because they are speaking for their own special interests and not the interests of society at large. We'll be uh, listening tonight at 630, Alex. Thanks for your passion on this. Thank you. Bye, guys. Alex Pearson uh, joining us. All right. You've heard the phrase, uh, uh, you've heard the phrase, an abundance of caution. I know you have. I know you have, and uh, maybe you've heard it uh, uh, several times too much. Well, we're using an abundance of caution, apparently, allegedly, in Canada when it comes to oral treatments uh, for COVID. The United States has already pushed out drugs from Pfizer and from Merck. The Pfizer one is more uh, uh, more um, effective. The Pfizer, they both can be taken at home. Um, they're going to hit more people than the, the monoclonal antibody treatments, uh, which is usually IV infusions, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the Pfizer pill reduces the risk of hospitalization, even with high-risk unvaccinated people, by 88%. And uh, it's, as our next guest points out over the weekend, it's probably too late for this wave. But what are we waiting for to prevent what we're seeing now? For the next wave, Dr. Zane Chagla uh, is our guest, infectious diseases physician at St. Joe's Hamilton, and he joins me now. It is always great to have a conversation with you. Uh, we all benefit from it. We all get a little smarter. You've been on this for a long time. I'm going to put this right to you. Do you need more of your colleagues? Do you need more people in the media championing this and asking questions as to why we've been so slow and behind? We've been like a turtle compared to the hare in, in terms of getting these oral treatments approved for people that desperately need them. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, we've been behind on therapeutics from the beginning, even the monoclonal antibodies you talked about. Mm -hmm. It took so much work to get them out there. You know, we had to even like us at St. Joe's, we developed the first clinic for this because of the fact that they were sitting on shelves when they could have been going to patients. Right. And so, you know, absolutely, there's there's an essential need for us to get therapeutics. They're not going to stop spread, but they're going to stop people who are the highest risk from ending up in hospital, uh, even if it's a limited number of doses Canada gets. Uh, and again, you know, we know healthcare capacity is so stretched in Canada, so why are we not using every single tool out there to use it? And one thing that's happened and one thing that people should know about is, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, Health Canada it introduced similar to the United States emergency use authorization, kind of getting drugs out onto the market a little early so people could use them, knowing that it was a medical emergency uh, and, you know, data could be generated after the fact. We use that for vaccines and they've, they've proven to be safe and effective. At, in, at the end of September of 2021, that kind of legislation basically lapsed. And so drugs right now are going through the old process of approval 
which clearly is not time effective enough to deal with the fact our hospitals are filling up with a viable solution sitting on the market. This is not unlike um, the vaccine for five to 11 year olds. It's not unlike um, the, the vaccine and all the controversy and uh, and approval and the back and forth about AstraZeneca. And I don't mind. I said this earlier. I don't mind when people pivot and I don't mind when people say, hey, you know, we're going to yank something because we're not sure. But you just got to be transparent with people. I, is this land on the desk of NASI? Is this health Canada? Is it the federal government? Where do you put the put put the finger and say put finger of, of blame for lack of a better term and say we need that we need to expedite this a little more? Yeah, I mean it's all it's Health Canada. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know they're the ones and, and they do an incredible job. I don't want to disregard my colleagues there. Yeah. Their, their whole point is to keep Canadians safe, and their mandate is to keep Canadians safe and arm's length from every agency. But you know, again, they can't not look outside and see what's happening to our hospitals and our healthcare system and, you know, think to themselves, oh, you know, a couple more weeks of data or this or that, when many other countries, the UK, the United States have approved these drugs, you know, is an acceptable outcome. The drug is, is procured. So the second it is approved, it will show up in Canada. But the fact of the matter is it has to be approved first. And, and for, that is the real bottleneck here to get going. Dr. Zane Chagles, our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Is that why it's tricky? Um, you, you probably look at a ton of numbers. I bet you, you know, our, our audience, they're listening to this show. They're probably, they probably feel real invested as well. And I look and, and we try and look, we've tried to look at trends from South Africa, Denmark, the UK. Is, is looking at UK numbers when they get better, when hospitalizations are now, you know, steeply declining in a lot of areas, is that tough to compare us to there because they are using these drugs and we're not? Um, I mean, there's a lot of issues in the United Kingdom that, that have probably given their benefit. I think there is, unfortunately, or fortunately, a lot of natural immunity in that population. And so we know vaccines plus natural immunity probably give the most robust immunity out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as uh, you know, the UK has had a fairly open policy since July of 2021, you know, there have been a lot of people infected. But right now they're not coming back for hospitalizations or that type of thing if they've been infected and vaccinated. Um, you know, they're, they're using a lot of tools. I mean, the lateral flow tests are there out there, the, the rapid test. They're, again, using these tools. They've been using monoclonal antibodies. Um, so, you know, you, you, you do have a little bit of an advantage there. You know, is it something that we wanted a lot of people in Canada to get COVID over the summer? No, obviously not. But, you know, they are starting at a slightly different point than we are. When you look at where we're at with uh, with the, the people that um, that would need these drugs, is there a a, a specific demographic? I'm, I'm the, the reading I was doing yesterday did note there's a lot of older people that can now can walk in in the United States and they could be obese, they could be diabetic. When we talk about comorbidities and we need to talk about them a lot more than and, and we're getting there, I think we're getting there. They're eligible to just walk in, get a prescription, and they can sit on a shelf. And if you get sick from COVID, you're there without having to be rushed to an emergency room or go to a clinic yeah absolutely look you know number one we have to be testing these people and and, you know again we've done a disservice to put everyone in the same pile for testing until finally the testing guidelines changed and now we can start testing people at higher risk there are elderly people who are going to be breakthrough infections where you know again we really Mm -hmm. do want their symptoms to come under control quickly because they're so frail that hospitalization is a possibility for them there are patients who are unvaccinated who are elderly that you know again we want to make sure that they have a benign outcome from their COVID-19 as it affects us all if they're hospitalized. And then the third group is people that are immunocompromised, that have to live in the world. And, and you know, again, we in the city of Hamilton, we have 
you know, a thousand people that are kidney transplant recipients just living in the city, right? So, or in the region. And so, you know, again, those people, when they get COVID, we get worried about, you know, they've taken three doses of vaccine, but we're not even sure if that's enough for them, considering that only about two thirds of them make an immune response. Uh, and so, you know, again, to, to link those people to treatment early so that they don't have to worry about necessarily having the worst prognosis from COVID-19, you know, because of their medical conditions, they don't have to shelter in place and, and make yeah. it, you know, engage with their lives is, is important. Dr. Zane Chagla, our guest um, on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Let me take your temperature on what I think. So we've had a lot of uh, honest and frank conversations about, uh, I don't know that this is specifically about media coverage, but I think there's there's two stories that are happening right now. One is our hospitals. One is our healthcare system cratering. And of course, we're all conscious of that, hyper-conscious, as, as much, maybe even more so than we were last spring when we were all starting to get vaccinated. The second that I think has been undersold, I, I worry that it's been oversold, is people's individual risk. I'm hearing all over the continent from doctors saying no one is coming to an emergency room who's been boosted. And uh, and I just I think that was lost in a lot of the, the the messaging. I think people got scared for the healthcare system, maybe more than, say, their individual family risk. And yet again, we've got to be conscious of our behavior. What would you say to that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, there was a great study released by the CDC on the weekend that looked at you know, people who had breakthrough infections that led to hospitalization, led to death, you know, amongst a million, 1.3 million individuals, you know, every single person who was hospitalized had one comorbidity. And, and some of those are comorbidities where, again, a vaccine would not necessarily have its effect because they're so suppressed in immunity. Uh, and the people that died had four comorbidities or more. Not to say we shouldn't protect those people, yeah. but, you know, a 40-year-old who's healthy, who's received two or three doses of vaccine, is probably not going to land in an emergency room. And and again, you know, that, that risk calculus has completely changed. Yes, the numbers are going up, but we also aren't describing, we don't know what the actual number is in the community, right? There are some estimates that 20 to 30 percent of people have acquired COVID-19 over the last three to four weeks. And so, you know, the numbers in the hospital are a reflection of 30 percent of the population getting COVID at once. You know, they are high. Don't get me wrong. But that equally describes the number of people in the community that have not ended up in hospital, a large number of the community that haven't ended up in hospital. And again, that part probably isn't being described as well. Like Dr. Eric Topol put that out over the weekend, he wrote stunning high level and durable effectiveness of three shot vaccines for people even age 65 and over. And I, I mentioned that I'm like, we can, can we all just share this with with our boosted parents and grandparents so they they relax a little bit. I've, I've never seen the temperature so high. Again, there's individual risk and, and your family risk. And there's, yes, the healthcare system. But we got to balance a the media coverage of it and b just just our heart rates about that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and, and I, I think, again, the, 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 the thing that's changed over the last while is the fact that people can get COVID with a vaccine. But, you know, we've we've sensationalized that a lot to a bad outcome yeah. or a moral failure. And, and again, it's it's driving people to incredible stress. Yes, I don't want anyone to get COVID-19. It's, it's not a great disease to get. But at the same time, you know, again, if you're triple vaccinated, you know, outside of those groups that we're trying to engage with therapy to make sure that they have another layer of protection, you, your outcomes are going to be pretty good. The people that are hospitalized aren't all for because of COVID-19. And even some of them who are admitted for COVID-19 are admitted for issues with frailty or organ dysfunction that just gets pushed over the top with COVID-19. So, you know, again, it it, it isn't the right perspective. There are people hospitalized 
But again, a healthy person who's taken their vaccine series, who's done the right thing, and an elderly person who has their disease conditions under control, who's done the right thing, faces a risk, but not you know as, as significantly high as the temperature on, on social media. I have 45 more seconds. Why do you think, and this is not a call out, why do you think we struggled talking about comorbidities and, and and why was it sort of a one size fits all now it's safe to go out now it's not and and we were given health advice for 18 year olds the same way we were giving for 78 year olds why did we struggle you know especially in a post-vaccine world why did we struggle yeah. for so long i mean i think it's the pre-vaccine world right because the people with without comorbidities would get sick and and we we recognize that you mm-hmm. know at a post-vaccine world i think yeah that nuancing conversation hasn't happened and you know, it is probably that pre-vaccine mentality that's just kind of filtered across. Dr. Chagla, fantastic. By the way, I, you know, not to end on a down note because you've given us a lot of up. When you, when you're a massive Raptors fan. When you're watching these games with no stands again, doesn't make you want to jump off a bit. Like it's terrible. It's terrible. Know, and they're playing. They're playing so well. <laughs> <laughs> like such good days. I want to see Freddie play. All right, next time. Next time, you're going to tell us. Uh, I, you know, because uh, you can't predict anything with this. Just tell us we'll be back for April with maybe a playoff stretch. We got to get back oh, in that oh, building by yeah, April first. We've got to see these guys in the playoffs. Obviously, they're putting their hearts out there. So, so we got to watch it. My, sure. my heavens! Hey, you're always uh, uh, always a great guest, and thank you for your time this morning uh, and and your advocacy, and especially vaccine equity across the planet. Getting these oral pills out there, both such important things, and and I think we all need to talk more about it. So, uh, I, I'm here for you anytime you want to do that. No worries. All the best, Greg. Uh, Amy Lundy Dahl is a uh, tennis writer, tennis journalist, podcaster as well. She's appeared on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and her uh, work all over the place. And she's kind enough to get up early uh, to join me now. Uh, Amy, it's great to have you on. Thanks for uh, thanks for me. Eight minute abs or seven minute abs? There's no wrong answer. <laughs> no, as long as you're doing abs, <laughs> it's all good. Yes, better uh, now than ever to be uh, safe and happy. Um, Novak Djokovic's abs aren't on the docket for our conversation, uh, but his victory in uh, a a court so far is, it's not over. I don't know when this will be over, and the clock's ticking, like this tournament starting, the one he's won nine times a week from now. And he's been in detention. He hasn't had access to his normal training regimens or equipment or nutrition that he likes. So how, even if he's able to play, which there's still some question, uh, how is he going to be prepared wise? I, I don't think this is a good situation for him or for the tournament. And and we were facing this last year in Melbourne, weren't we, with the Australian Open? With you'd see videos of players like taking the bed mattress and <laughs> and hitting balls against it. There was a very harsh and restrictive. Remember as well, pre-vaccination for almost everybody on the planet at that point in time. And uh, and players were uh, they were they were very militant about when you arrive, you're you're locked down until we can make sure that you're not shedding the virus. That's right. And there are actually a couple of players who have tested positive this year. Sebastian Corda, who is in that quarantine again, hitting the balls up against the bed frame. So it's they're very strict in Australia. This is a this is a really interesting case because um, and we'll get to sort of the overall reaction of the tennis community. Um, But Djokovic has obviously uh, walked this line 
for probably the entire pandemic. He was one of the first athletes I'd heard of testing positive. He decided in the summer of 2020 to have uh, like an exhibition tournament and whatnot as as tournaments were all shut down. There was no French Open on time. They later pushed the French Open to the fall. Wimbledon was canceled for the first time ever. And um, But Djokovic was, was pushing this long when we were all still a lot more afraid and not understanding what this was. This is one of those stories, Greg, where sport elucidates what's going on in real life. It's the vaccine issue. It's the issue that pits the health of the greater good versus individual rights. So if you're wondering what the temperature is like out there, all you need to do is just look at sport to understand. Mm -hmm. Amy Lundy-Dahl, our guest on Toronto Today. It's a different story in Australia, right? I don't know that we would see this kind of um, consternation if this was the U.S. Open was beginning. Uh, Even in France or the U.K., where French Open and Wimbledon, when that gets going late May, early June, we wouldn't. We obviously, you know, our audience would be well aware of Kyrie Irving, uh, you know, standing up and saying this is this is where I stand Aaron Rodgers who's probably going to win the NFL MVP and may go to the Super Bowl again so we're conscious of this this was just though wrong circumstance wrong country and uh and Novak Djokovic runs into trouble here I don't think he's going to have this trouble at the other three slams do you well, there's some uh, bubbling up in France where Roland Garros is. That would be the next Grand Slam on the calendar. A French minister for sports said that he would be welcomed into the country mm-hmm. uh, unvaccinated. However, uh, the very top echelons of the government in France are saying that, no, we're going to have a vaccine mandate. So this whole issue could come up again with the very next Grand Slam. And of course, it depends on where we stand in the pandemic. Hopefully, this this latest wave with Omicron is, is the last wave. Have you seen other players be openly critical of, of Novak? What do you hear from your sources sort of bubbling under the surface? And the reason I ask that is I, I know there's a lot of people that say, well, uh, you know, th- this player, these players aren't stepping up and criticizing Aaron Rodgers or Kyrie Irving. And there just is that code. A lot of times things are happening internally in, in sports organizations, in the ATP and WTA locker rooms. You don't, you, you rarely get, you know, a glimpse of who really doesn't like each other or, or tension um, boiling above the surface as opposed to under the surface. What are you hearing? Some of the statements that have been made by some of the players like Rafael Nadal have been about as critical as you get in tennis. And uh, Andy Murray has come out and said that he's pro-vaccine and, you know, you you really need to get the vaccine in order to make things run smoothly and do this for the benefit of public health. However, their words have always been couched in, I understand what he might be going through mm-hmm. because the tennis players on tour, they call this a traveling circus, what they do. They go all around the world and they set up their, their tournament and it really is like a circus what they do and they need each other. So there is that collegiality and willingness to um, look out for one another. However, there have been statements made, even by some of the top players, that they really wish Novak would have been vaccinated. 
Um, I want to ask you quick about Naomi Osaka. A lot of our uh, audience would be very familiar with her. Um, she's the defending champion here, uh, beating Jen Brady in, in the final last time around. This was the what as many young players have risen up, just like we saw Raducanu and, and our own Layla Fernandez in the U.S. Open final. This was the one shining light in a post-Serena universe. Um, Naomi Osaka was was looking like she could dominate. We don't have a clue what her 2022 looks like in terms of how often she'll play and and how capable she'll be of winning more tournaments, do we? No, we don't really understand what her form will be like. However, she did play in a warm-up tournament this past week, and she played well. She did have to withdraw from the tournament after winning a few matches because of an abdominal injury. She said, my body is just not used to playing, like, match-tough right now, and it was kind of a shock. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, it's not clear, Greg, but signs are are positive and hopeful that she's off to a good start this year yeah it's an incredibly rough last six months and for understandable reasons amy lundy doll our guest thank you you're a great guest thank you for uh, for bringing uh bringing us an update on this and uh we look forward to a successful australian open hopefully we can chat again before that's all over thanks so much for having me greg you bet Uh, Sheba Siddiqui, Dave Bradley, Gord Rennie uh, join us now. Now, we don't have snow right now in uh, in Toronto. We might get some soon. Um, but a Manitoba, Sheba, a Manitoba member of uh, the legislature there, like his tweet went around the planet yesterday. Tell us, tell us what happened. Okay, well, first of all, this guy wins biggest loser on the internet for yesterday, okay? <laughs> so he tweets this. He tweets this. Uh, this is on, on Saturday, actually. He tweeted out a picture. For, there's, there's snow everywhere, okay? Yeah. It's a picture of his driveway. His cars are covered in snow. Driveway, you can't see anything. It's just inches of snow. And he's got, there's, his wife is shoveling the driveway. And this is what he tweets with a picture of her shoveling the driveway as he's inside, staring outside from a window. Even after a 12-hour night shift at the hospital last night, my wife still has the energy to shovel the driveway. God bless her and all our frontliners. Time to make her some breakfast. As he's inside, nice and warm, watching her shovel the driveway. Do you guys do this to your wives? Absolutely not. Take pictures of No, I don't, I don't, I don't publicize her shoveling. I, I keep it quite private. I think that's this is the problem is publicizing the fact that she uh, she did it. And and he did note that, now, do you think, Sheba, this matters what the breakfast was? If he's just throwing in a couple eggs, no. I don't have time for this. What if he's making her a Western omelet with mushrooms? What if he's the he's the cook of the family and she, does, does, and she does the hard labor? <laughs> exactly. What does it matter? No. She, she's coming back from a 12-hour <laughs> shift at the hospital during a pandemic, and he's sitting inside his nice warm house watching her shovel the driveway. <laughs> you run out and you grab that shovel and you tell her to go inside because breakfast is already made. Go have breakfast while I shovel the driveway. You deserve it. Gord, could it no be, shame, too. Gord, could it guy. be just a stress reliever? Like, what if she was running on the treadmill in the basement? I don't know. Like, nobody would be upset about that. No, he's... Uh... There's he, no escaping he's a this. Yeah, <laughs> you, can't, you can't look at any positives, and he may have been, you know, tweeting it in with a different frame of mind, but it doesn't matter. But, it's just, it's just bad. Well, Sheba, I hope you're happy he got as skewered as he got. Again, it went everywhere. Um, you it know, did. there, there's not much uh, now. 
I want to I want to cl- clarify this tweet. 3:44 a.m. He sent out a tweet. Here's what he wrote. Now he Canada <laughs> won some uh, um, tennis thing on the weekend, like the, the ATP Cup. Nobody cares about it. Barely anybody knows about it. But we do have good tennis players now. Here's what he wrote. 3:44 a.m. Diehard stayed up late for this one because the future is now. Way to go, Felix and Chapo. Two one over Russia. And then he put a bunch of hashtags in because politicians do that. So. Maybe he's exhausted, Sheba, because he spent his entire evening watching tennis. Can we not make? Can we not give an excuse for him for that? We no, we've been, we can't. we're left hanging here for this. I'm sorry. This woman is like she's wife of the year. I don't know what he was thinking. And he's a politician. Come on, they're <laughs> they know exactly well, what they tweet. I'm not sure if you follow the news. There's not a lot of moral code sometimes for politicians um, <laughs> on our planet sometimes. So I don't. I, I, now I would. Wa- would I watch a reality show with these two now to figure out what's going on? Like if I watched hours of Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston and Charlie Sheen and Denise Richards, I'd watch these two. See I what's think happening someone, here. Someone tweeted out. A woman tweeted out. Uh, she retweeted him and said, <laughs> "I am willing to pay for her divorce lawyer." So- <laughs> oh my gosh! Again, we don't. We need to know the breakfast. If it's a if it's a burnt bagel and tap water. <laughs> But what if it's not? This guy could have been cooking for an hour and a half. The, the cooking of the breakfast could have taken longer than the driveway, Sheba. I, I feel for this woman. You don't tweet that out. That's all I'm yeah. saying. Maybe she enjoys it. Great for her. She loves to shovel the driveway. That's her workout. You burn a lot of cal- calories. You don't tweet that out comfy from your home after your wife just got home from the hospital. What if what if Mrs. Bradley and Mrs. Rennie sent pictures? What if it was snowing right now and they're here <laughs> and they and then they tweeted out pictures? Well, I'm hard at work speaking into a microphone and saying things. Uh, here's my here's my here are my here are our wives. Like you want to you know pay homage. It's about the heroes. No. Bang pots and pans. We were doing that. What's wrong with it? No, it's the timing of it. Oh, okay. Optics, man. Optics. By the yes. the comments, politician. by the way, in, in response <laughs> yeah. to that tweet are yes. amazing. I they thought are. we all agreed we don't read the comments. No, no, you <laughs> read those ones, that's for sure. Um, really quick, I so when I moved from Michigan, uh, we, were, uh, we had a two-year-old and my wife was uh, four months pregnant. So we had our second baby in May and I'm up here all the time working. So every time it would snow, I, I know she'd like, uh, we'd talk it a lot and she'd go, well, I shoveled the driveway today. And I just cringed on the phone, right, from Toronto with her back in Michigan because I'm like, She's probably had to put my two-year-old in a snowsuit, keep him busy, like, eating snow or something while she's out by the road. And, like, a, a, a six-, seven-month belly out there shoveling snow. I felt really bad because people were like, you must be married to the worst husband. Where is he? A Red Wings game? Is he at a concert? Where? Playing roller hockey at the gym? Where is he? I felt terrible about that. I'm getting the shakes thinking about it. Let's get John Reyes on the show. Let's 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 ingratiate him into Ontario and find out what what's going on. Oh goodness! He may have to move here. You're as likely to get him on as we are Stephen Lecce in the next uh, four days. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast. We've got a live show tomorrow, of course, on Global News Radio 640 Toronto at 5:30. Please uh, rate us, subscribe to us, and pass along to a friend. We want to be out there as much as possible. It helps us do what we do. Know what we can do better as well for you as a listener. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.